questions podcast from those nerdy girls at Dear Pandemic. Here on the podcast, we chat with experts across many disciplines of science to explore how our interconnected world is being reshaped by the COVID-19 pandemic. Find us on our website at dearpandemic.org. I'm your host, Dr. Malia Jones, hybrid social infectious disease epidemiologist at UW-Madison's Applied Population Laboratory and editor-in-chief at Dear Pandemic. Welcome to the I Have Questions podcast from those nerdy girls at Dear Pandemic. Here on the podcast, we chat with experts across many disciplines of science to find the ways our interconnected world is being reshaped by the COVID-19 pandemic. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash dearpandemic. Twitter at Dear Pandemic or Instagram at Dear underscore Pandemic. I'm your host, Malia Jones, hybrid social infectious disease epidemiologist at UW-Madison's Applied Population Laboratory, editor-in-chief of Dear Pandemic and lifelong question asker. Today I'm chatting with Dr. Ajay Sethi, Associate Professor of Population Health Science at UW-Madison's School of Medicine and Public Health. Dr. Sethi has a PhD in epidemiology and a Master's of Health Science in Molecular Biology and Immunology from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Sethi has spent his career studying the behavioral and structural factors that lead to transmission of infectious disease. He studied HIV AIDS, hospital-acquired infections, and other infectious diseases. Today, we're going to be talking to him about another area of his expertise, the science of public health conspiracies. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Malia. So you offer a course at UW-Madison called Conspiracies in Public Health. What led you to offer this course? Yeah, so let me, let me say that the target audience um, for the class are any health profession students, so medical, public health, physician assistant, nursing, pharmacy. Um, I've received requests from graduate students as well, and I've always allowed them to join the class too. Um, you know, my first, I should say that I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist and not a psychologist. So when I conceived of this course, uh, the subject was a little out of my comfort zone, but I had this sense of urgency uh, that sort of outweighed that concern. And it was a time when, you know, our country was having large outbreaks of measles. Um, I was becoming increasingly concerned, like a lot of people, about how previously innocuous subjects related to health. Uh, were becoming hot button subjects. Um, you know, I had also read reports that some physicians were avoiding discussions about immunizations with parents if mm-hmm. they suspected that they would question their safety or effectiveness. All those things led me to create conspiracies in public health. Um, the aim is to ultimately build skills in our future health professions and public health students or practitioners. Uh, in having difficult conversations with patients, with clients, and communities. Yeah, this is an area that, of interest that we share. I, my, um, most of my research looks at vaccine hesitancy and, and studies how these ideas spread. So 
Um, so I'm really interested in this area too. There are plenty of examples of conspiracy theories in the public health space. Um, and just to name a few, there's um, fluoride in water being used for nefarious purposes, HIV deniers, people who don't want to vaccinate their kids because they um, are worried that there's some kind of conspiracy um, to harm their children or about where the vaccines came from. Uh, we have fears around GMOs. And one of my favorites in public health's infancy over 200 years ago when the smallpox inoculation was first discovered and started to be distributed, which was derived from, from um, cows, directly from lesions on cows, there were people who thought that it would turn us into cow-human mutant hybrids. Um, do you have a favorite health conspiracy or um, general conspiracy? Well, yeah, so I'll, I'll say that uh, anytime we can have a hybrid between humans and some animal, I think that's awesome. Uh, <laughs> but I'll say that I, and I, I'll get to that in a second. I'll say that, so I hesitate to say favorite because for a lot of the contemporary examples of conspiracies in public health, once when you start investigating them, you know, as you know, you discover the kind of harm that they can do when they're perpetuated. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so then... But then I, I sort of, I might not say favorite, but I will say I'm certainly fascinated by sort of some of them. Uh, and, and my favorite, you know, isn't maybe directly connected with public health, but uh, I've always been fascinated uh, by the reptilian conspiracy theory. Uh, that oh, there tell are, me more. Well, this, this is why I like the cow-human hybrids. Uh, there are these reptilian humanoids on our planet uh, among the elite in our society, leaders uh, and, and, and working in government, uh, trying to take over the human race. And, and, and this can be sort of traced back thousands of years, uh, and they've been popularized more recently. And the reason I am fascinated by that theory is it takes me back to when I was 13 years old, 1984, uh, and, and there was a television miniseries that you, you may know uh, called V for Visitors. Uh, and it was all about this. Uh, the V franchise has had some reboots since, but I've not uh, seen any of them because the original in my mind to my 13-year-old self back in the 80s, uh, you know, it was this perfect mix of cheesiness and fantasy. And so when I see that conspiracy continue to perpetuate today, uh, I'm sort of drawn to reading more about that. Yeah, sort of nostalgic one. Um, I'm a big science fiction fan myself, so... I appreciate the uh, the animal human humanoid hybrids of all varieties too. I guess. So, I what are we talking? Interest. Yeah, <laughs> what are we talking about? What are conspiracy theories? I mean, so when we define conspiracy, we're talking uh, a secret plan uh, where two or more people, uh, you know, are trying to do something harmful or illegal. Uh, usually, maybe those two people are uh, in a position of power or authority. Maybe they belong as part of an organization. Um, yeah, so I, I would say we could say it uh, as that. Okay. Um, it seems to me, maybe this is, uh, this is just my bias because I'm in public health, but it seems to me that there are a lot of conspiracy theories in public health. Do you think public health as a discipline is more susceptible to um, having conspiracies form about its programs than other parts of science? You know, I, I can't say I've thought about it so deeply, but I, I, I think I'd agree with you. Um, maybe the more basic sciences, you know, don't have that same engagement with the public like public health does. And it brings together all these 
disciplines, um, lab sciences, behavioral sciences, uh, you know, clinical perspectives, policy, politics, economics. Um, yeah, I, I have thought about this in some ways of, as maybe being about the, when public health interventions really um, work, they're applied to a lot of people. Um, and maybe we don't always explain exactly why. So I don't know, maybe that leads yeah. to more susceptibility. Yeah, and when you're talking about very complex problems trying to be solved, there's a lot of opportunities to uh, you know, develop conspiracy thinking. Yeah. So who is susceptible to conspiracy thinking? You know, I'd say everyone, uh, all people, because we're emotional beings. Um, we're always, um, you know, encountering very complex uh, situations. And we might be drawn to conspiracies to explain those very complex situations during an emotional time. I think COVID's a good example of that. Um, you know, our, our own brains are accustomed uh, to things like, for example, binary thinking. Or, or being susceptible to fear and uncertainty or feeling a loss of control. Um, and I think that just makes all of us susceptible at any given time to, uh, to, to sort of adopt conspiracies. Right. I always think of a child who uh, asked their mom if they can go play with their friends and, and, uh, and the mom will say, well, go ask your dad. And then, child goes acid down and gets the same answer as if they, you know, worked on that response the night before. <laughs> and immediately the child's <laughs> going to think, you know, my parents are against me. Mm. And that may be true. They might have actually had a secret plan <laughs> to deny the kid this opportunity to go play endlessly with their friends. But, uh, you know, again, this is just something we do very naturally when we're a child and we still continue to do that as an adult. So I think I'm hearing you say it's almost like a, um, a heuristic for how we can understand the world. Yeah, definitely. So one of the puzzles that I uh, encounter in my work with vaccine hesitancy all the time is um, when we look at people who are hesitant about vaccinating their kids, um, they're very hard to turn around. It's a very sticky idea. And so one of the things um, that I wonder about a lot is what is it about um, an idea like vaccines are unsafe or, an, or some other, you know, more of a conspira true conspiracy where there's some secret organization at play? What's so sticky about these ideas? Yeah, so what you're describing, as you know, is like an anchoring bias where we tend to rely so heavily on maybe a first impression um, or the first encounter of uh, explanation for something complex that feels good to us and we, we decide we're gonna stick with that explanation. It can be very hard to sway away from that. And, and that is a heuristic, a, a cognitive shortcut that we take, that our brains take, um, you know, in order to make sense of the world and to get through our days. Often. These, these shortcuts are needed. Uh, scientists will say that in a given day, you know, we make about 225 related food decisions. <laughs> um, you know, that we make 2,000 decisions per hour uh, just to navigate wow. uh, our waking hours. We need these shortcuts to get through our day. Uh, but unfortunately, some of those shortcuts are biases that can do us harm. 
and you describe anchoring bias, and I think that's a good example. The implicit biases or explicit biases, those are not uh, necessarily good biases to have. Um, confirmation bias, I think, comes into play as well uh, as we seek out information that confirms what we think we know, but unfortunately what we think we know may not be correct to begin with. Mm -hmm. Can you just tell us what implicit bias and explicit bias are? Yeah, so implicit biases would be things that are in our subconscious, uh, and they're often used to, to talk about sort of uh, racism, uh, that we might have biases towards people because of their race or ethnicity. Uh, without even getting to know an individual, we have these sort of programmed um, beliefs or stereotypes of individuals uh, or maybe ideas. And they can do harm because it, it affects how we make decisions uh, we don't intend to do that, but it's because our through our interactions in society, we over time become programmed. To yeah, do we're that. socialized uh, in into those um, really deep belief systems. That's right, and 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 so it's really important for us to think about what our implicit biases might be, and to use techniques to sort of break away from some of those. Yeah, and how about explicit biases? Well, that's going to be a bias that you actually verbalize. Uh -huh. And so it, going back to the idea of, of racism, any explicit uh, statement that's racist is certainly going to be harmful. Right. Yeah. Um, so turning to the present moment, you know, we're talking about this because Dear Pandemic is all about trying to share um, COVID-19 information. And uh, it seems like we have I mean, at least a baker's dozen of new conspiracy theories related to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I imagine this has a special place in um, the Venn diagram of your expertise because you're both an infectious disease epidemiologist and you, you um, teach and study these conspiracy theories in public health. So, you know, these theories range from um, the nefarious lab uh, technicians in China who um, purposefully mutated and released the virus to the idea that the entire pandemic is just a invention of um, a hysterical media. So, um, and, you know, many more. Where do these theories come from? It seems like they cropped up nearly as fast as, as COVID-19 itself. Yeah, you know, I mean, people have sort of developed conspiracy theories for many years. And so COVID certainly, you know, what are we talking about uh, constantly, uh, all of 2020, 24 seven news cycles, all about COVID. And if anybody sort of, for example, was against, uh, you know, the 5G rollout uh, of cell phone network, right? that new cell phone network that we're uh, gonna be using soon, or if not already, um, you know, I always say, you know, January 1, everybody had their New Year resolutions. And the person who woke up saying, this is the year that I'm going to get, I'm going to stop 5G rollout, um, you know, suddenly was disappointed that anything that they were thinking could possibly be in the news when COVID hit. Uh, um, so there's an example of a conspiracy where I think it's pretty outlandish. But that person who was dead set on, on stopping the rollout of 5G um, had to somehow attach their self-interest uh, to COVID. 
And now we get these conspiracies that just don't make any sense, but they've done harm. In England, you know, towers, yeah. 5G towers have been destroyed by people who believe that. Right. Um, as far as like, the origin of the virus, um, you know, that's where, you know, uh, it, the original SARS also had uh, rumors that uh, it was, it escaped a lab. Um, HIV has, you know, conspiracies developed by Russians and sort of planted in the United States that the CIA or the federal government created HIV uh, and the CIA spread it in African-American communities as a form of genocide. Um, yeah, that's, that's one unfortunately that continues to stick today um, among in African-American communities that have distrust uh, towards government, particularly related to HIV. And we can go back all the way to Tuskegee where some of those, some of those, uh, the harmful effects of Tuskegee, uh, some of those harmful effects have, have continued uh, to today. In the class, you know, we explore uh, unintended consequences because not all conspiracies are outlandish. And, and I think it's important that people in public health, in a sense, take responsibility for uh, sources of conspiracy. So uh, a good example would be the claim that polio vaccine causes cancer. And if you saw that on a comment board someplace, you might just dismiss that person as having fringe views. But then if you investigate a little further, you find out that in the 1950s, when polio vaccine was being produced, it was being cultured in monkey kidney cells. Right. And, and for many years, we were doing that. In a yeah, blender. No, well, this, your, this is your area of expertise, so I should ask you. Yeah, yeah and so 1960, you know, SV40, simian virus 40 is discovered, and, and we find out that 10 to 30% of vaccines given to people were contaminated with this virus that didn't have any harm in monkeys, but uh, lab studies showed in humans, if you give a high enough dose to, uh, uh, um, you know, rats can develop cancer if they're exposed to enough SV40. And there's not been any human studies to show that anybody who had polio vaccine from that era developed cancer. But again, once when you hear that claim, polio vaccine causes cancer, it's easy to dismiss it as mm -hmm. being outlandish. You investigate and you realize there was an unintended consequence. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's some truth to the, to the fear um, but, but we, you know, we just have to acknowledge that the CDC does it on their webpage under vaccine safety. They, they talk about, uh, SV40 contaminated polio virus vaccine of the fifties, and they're very transparent about it. That may not satisfy a lot of people, but it's, it, it's good to at least communicate that honestly. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think, I wonder how, to what extent one of the challenges here is, is the, how many shades of gray it takes to communicate that kind of risk. You know, you're talking about, it's, it's not that polio vaccine causes cancer. It's that, you know, in a subset of people who got polio vaccine, there was a contamination of another thing that does cause cancer in animal models. And I, there has been some, um, uh, not large studies, but there have been some people who had a rare form of cancer that was linked to the to receiving a contaminated polio vaccine. Um, so that's a lot of shades of gray. And I, I find um, that it's really hard to communicate that. People want to know yeah, what would, is the risk and it's, you know. 
Yeah, and again, I think that's our sort of tendency to look for our tendency towards binary thinking. We want to know is this good or bad, mm -hmm. and, and you express mm -hmm. that well. There's lots of shades of gray in between, and and this is the challenge of risk communication. How do we, how do we let the public know what the risk is, especially for risks that are not particularly large, um, because it can be it can be very hard to understand. Um, you know, if I ha if I if I don't wear my seatbelt uh, for the next week, I may not suffer the consequences of not wearing my seatbelt. But it's an important thing to do because when I do have that consequence, a car accident, uh, you know, it could be fatal. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So it sounds like in some cases we actually can trace back the origins of a specific conspiracy theory. Um, and probably in other cases, it's very hard to do that, I would imagine. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think there's a whole spectrum. And mm -hmm. so there's, I think there's always some degree of truth uh, to a claim, but they might evolve to the point where they become just way too outlandish. But some of them may not be, uh, don't require a lot of evolution. They, um, they started off as an actual conspiracy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, Tuskegee is a good ex example of that. That's right. And so when we think about the effects that Tuskegee has had, you know, decades later, um, you know, we, we need to take responsibility for uh, these things of the past and, and to be able to, you know, not ignore that. I think mm -hmm. that's really important. COVID's a good example. It, uh, there was a recent survey, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, about vaccine uptake in different communities in the United States. And overall, 50% uh, of Americans said they would get the COVID vaccine if available. And among African-Americans, that was only like 25%. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they didn't actually ask specifically about Tuskegee, but we can connect the dots and, and sort of recognize where this distrust uh, may come from. Yeah, absolutely. We can all also infer from um, other data that vaccine rates among African Americans are also low for um, influenza, seasonal flu every year, as well as HPV and a number of other, um, you know, widely accepted vaccines. So I'm wondering why do these ideas spread so easily? And maybe we can bake into that question. What's the role of social media? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely drawn to alter alternative realities. Um, you know, if they make us feel better or, or they're able to explain something that's rather complex or daunting, uh, COVID's a good example of that. Um, so again, it's really our psychology and, and certainly social media doesn't help. Mm -hmm. So my last question for you is this one. How do we effectively talk to someone who holds a belief that seems fully conspiratory or maybe just a little bit conspiratory. Are there some proven strategies to approach these conversations? Yeah, so I, I wish I had a formula, but I don't know anything that's, that's so clean cut. And, and, I, and I always sort of describe this as, you know, addressing misinformation sort of one conversation at a time. I don't think there's a one size fits all approach and it really comes down to those interpersonal dynamics you have with someone when you're having this conversation. Now, in the class, you know, we we talk about uh, you know principles of crisis counseling, 
you know, a basic tenet of that is to restore a person's sense of control. Um, we talk about motivational interviewing and active listening is a really important component of that. Uh, and risk communication where honesty and just being able to say, I don't know to somebody uh, is very important and valuable. Um, and then, you know, so apart from those sort of tools um, that have been proven in other arenas, uh, in other topics, uh, we also just talk about the importance of empathy. If we recognize that as human beings, we're all subject to going down this path of conspiracy thinking, we should feel sorry for people that do. Um, using mindfulness, um, I also say that it's important to have a, a, a healthy detachment. It's not a good idea to have a conversation with someone whose views are different from your own if it's going to raise your blood pressure. If it leads to an argument, this is not going to take anybody in the right direction. So mm -hmm. just having a, a good, that healthy detachment, I think, is important. Um, and also just teaching people and ourselves, frankly, how to look for uh, disconfirming information, I think, is really important. Uh, to think more scientifically as we come across uh, information in general. Uh, and this is the other thing that, you know, I, I'll say that it, this can be maybe the hardest, particularly for academics, um, is to avoid thinking that education is the answer. Mm. You know, we sort of default to, to assuming that people aren't educated. And that's, I, I think that's a dangerous path to go down because if I was told I was not educated, I might be offended by it. Sure. Um, and, and this is where the term mansplaining comes from. If you get mansplained, it's a, it's a real put off. Um, and, and so this is where I think we have to default back to active listening, understand where people are coming from. Um, yeah, and then, and then look for those shared interests, shared values as an entry point to maybe, uh, you know, pointing someone to a different direction, different mm -hmm. line of thinking. Interesting. Okay, those are all terrific suggestions. And those are all the questions I have for you today. But thanks so much for joining me. And I hope we get to talk oh. to you again soon. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for tuning in. This has been the I Have Questions podcast from those nerdy girls at Dear Pandemic. If you have a COVID question, you can submit it on our website at dearpandemic.org. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And subscribe to our podcast, I Have Questions, wherever you get podcasts or at anchor.fm slash dearpandemic. <laughs>